0: Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Von Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security, and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy.
1: And I'm Steve Seidman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network, so please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Hey, Steph, how you doing?
0: I'm doing great, Steve. I had such a lovely time with you and Cassie. We were together on Friday night for this poker night and a bunch of our friends slash colleagues were there, too. So it was so nice to to connect like that. And you were amazing hosts. So thank you again.
1: The first topic for today is the Summit of Democracies. That Joe Biden organized a group of a hundred countries or so, and they tried to bring forth more democracy in the world. What, what was your take on on this meeting? This
0: is where I had bad timing with our conference on December 9th and the tenth. So while we were all in a room talking about some similar themes, we were completely missing out on the democracy summit. But I did read a lot of the analysis and, and coverage after the fact, and it just seems like the the mood was rather subdued. So it was definitely not a celebration of democracy, but maybe a collective therapy session is how it's been described. And just admitting that there are huge challenges with the democratic model right now and seeing whether collectively there can be some strategies to change the trend so that they point in the right direction. I was also interested to to look at the invite list, who's invited, who's not. That's very telling, but also maybe more of a consultative framework because beyond representatives from governments, there was also an opportunity for civil society to, to be involved. So the broadening of the discussion to other types of stakeholders is probably a good idea when you're talking about democracy. This is an area where Canada, I suppose, can shine because in terms of the global standings for democracy, if you look at the democracy index, but also other types of indexes, Canada tends to have a relatively high standing. So it's one of those forums where Canada has some good grades at the very least. And then I was just curious to see how the statements on promoting democracy globally would translate into concrete initiatives. So I was also paying attention to that. You know, when we talk about strengthening democracy domestically and globally, what does that mean in practice? And what does that mean in terms of American commitments? Because democracy promotion has been done before. What's different about it this time? And what's the specific spin on it this time? What's the business case for it this time? So those were the angles I was paying attention to. Uh, You came to my conference, but you also had a free day on Friday. Did you spend any time tracking this live as it was unfolding?
1: I did catch up on the coverage of it. And it's interesting that you use the phrase democracy promotion, because in the past, it's about pushing forward the frontiers of democracy to have authoritarian regimes become more democratic. This one was clearly about retrenchment and holding the line. And the the reality is is that a lot of the threats we face to democracy are at home. I mean, it's been very striking that as this thing was going on, there are yet more and more revelations about what Donald Trump was willing to do to subvert American democracy. And that's not stopping. There's been a lot of activity by Trump, by state parties in many states in the United States, by the Republican Party in many states to, to change the rules to make sure that however people vote the next time, the Republicans will win. That one of the fundamental dynamics or definitions of democracy got to be willing to lose. And it seems like one party is not willing to do that. And it's not just the United States that's facing that. So it was a strange time to have the, dem- the United States out in front on this, given that its democratic credentials are tattered. I am Struck by the role of Canada in this, because when I was in Japan in 2016, the Japanese obviously had brought us out there in part to t- tell us that Canada has a role to play in promoting democracy in in East Asia and South coming Asia because Canada, unlike Japan, it does not have a whole lot of imperial freight to carry when uh, working with countries that are, are relatively democracies in that part of the world. So I think Canada can play a role. The United States has committed to spending a lot more money on democracy promotion, and promoting democracy within democracies. But it is a challenging time because because the United States doesn't really have a leg to stand on, <laughs> given what's going on, with efforts to suppress the vote and with the rule of law being pretty shaky these days. But on the other hand, people are wondering where American leadership was on this the past five years. So this is Biden announcing, we have a problem, we need to work on it collective. So I, I think it made sense to do, but I don't think anybody can expect to change things that much in the near term. But I think it was an important step for trying to reverse the trend of the United States staying out of this stuff, that this was not something that, that Trump would touch. But it's very, very much with the of American foreign policy to do this kind of thing. Speaking of democracies that are in trouble, uh, Ukraine has been trying to develop its democracy and it's been facing threats within and without. And it's obviously been in the news because the Russians have been putting tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand troops on the border, suggesting that an invasion might be imminent. How concerned are you about a Russian invasion of Ukraine, Stephanie?
0: Well, the military threat certainly seems to be there implicitly. And, and certainly after Crimea in 2014, you know, I completely understand the reading of the threat from the Ukrainian perspective. At the same time, you know, there have been large military buildups on Ukraine's border in the past year and two years, and uh, that didn't translate into an attack. So the, the signals are always difficult to interpret. And I think ambiguity is always part of the game. But what I wonder is, if Russia invades Ukraine, then what? This is not Crimea. I don't see what Russia gets out of occupying a country or being into a hot war, escalating the the current conflict. And then, you know, I I think of also about the implications of potential escalation for the Canadian Armed Forces that are deployed there. I wonder what in terms of planning is going on right now. And if you're at CJOP, what are the conversations going on about what to do with deployed service members right now? You know, they're participating in in training activities. They're training capacity building. They're not in a single location, but presumably you need to have a plan in motion for different types of scenarios involving this Russian buildup. So I'm, I'm very curious about that. Obviously, this is behind the curtain, but it's on my mind. And then, of course, there's the broader NATO piece about what should NATO do and was should NATO have given Ukraine membership, you know, when it had an opportunity to outside of this very tense standoff. You know, that moment has passed, but, but I think the line holds true that ultimately, whether Ukraine shows interest in a particular organization or another, at the end of the day, it's Ukraine's decision to, to demonstrate an interest as a sovereign nation and in international alliances, organizations, or any other multinational agreement and that position that that argument about sovereignty i think still still stands today and ukraine wanting nato membership and resisting russian pressure to the contrary is just an example of how russia's soft power has failed and also it's more coercive diplomacy. So I think it, it it really paints Russia in a bad light. It exposed a lot of its, its weaknesses to, to react in, in that way and to increase uh, military pressure on the border. And I think that the United States and its allies, the European Union as well, they've got a lot of ways to put pressure on Russia should they decide to escalate the situation further. What, what are your thoughts? Do you think that the United States is well positioned and NATO is well positioned to change the incentive structure for Russia right now? Or do you think that we're really on the brink of war?
1: I don't think we're quite on the brink of war but it's hard to tell what's in Putin's mind about this because I, I think exerting pressure on Ukraine, getting lots of attention from the, from outside of, makes a lot of sense for Putin, but an actual war, this is something that the Ukrainians have been preparing for quite some time now. And while the Russians would do quite well in a war in Ukraine, it's not clear what they would get from it. The effort in Crimea was you know, uh, a snatch and grab, was something they did very quickly, very minimal cost in terms of military behavior. They've paid a, a significant economic price for it. The sanctions against them have not been minor. They had an almost reasonable claim, which which was this was a border that had been fudged by Khrushchev a while ago and didn't really have any historical roots, yada, yada, yada. But to actually attack militarily, Ukraine directly head-on, would be against all the things that he's trying to do short of a war. This is not gray zone warfare, or war, hybrid warfare, whatever you want to call it. It would be out-and-out out warfare, and it would be very bloody. And his country would pay a high cost for it both in terms of the bloodshed and in terms of the sanctions they would face. And the United States has made it clear this time, because now we're all expecting it, what the price would be. So I, I'm hesitant to think that this could escalate to something bigger. But General Eyre noted in his own speeches that the wars started out this way through miscalculation. And, and so I don't think, for instance, that the Canada and NATO should ship lots of troops to Ukraine. I don't think we should make a commitment to defend it. because I'm not sure the commitment's real, and I don't think we want to get involved with, with Russia over Ukraine. But I do think we should make it clear that the price... If that, this were to happen, it would be much higher. That was the message that Biden sent when Biden and Putin met via teleconference last week. So I think that matters. I don't think, you know, I, I was asked by a media outlet how, whether we should send troops to, to the border. I'm like, no, we do not want to get involved in this. And the thing is, Putin's demand is that Ukraine not be allowed in, in NATO. But I, I'm not sure how important that really is because or why he really needs that. Given that if you look at NATO politics, it's very clear that Germans and the French are opposed to Ukrainian membership and you need consensus to make this happen. So it's not likely that Ukraine's become a member of NATO anytime soon. But I guess he's not confident about the politics within NATO, but he should be. On the other hand, Russian paranoia is a thing, but I think this is more about his domestic politics. And I think it's more about him as a, a troll in international relations trying to disturb things than him actually trying to start a war. But you know, things could go up, you know, happen next week and i will be proved wrong. I just don't see that it makes a lot of sense for him to start a war right now over one over, line of time clear. What, what's at stake?
0: The, the rhetoric is all about NATO, but I, I'm hard pressed to see something that's happened in the past few months that would instigate such a military reaction. Or So it, it makes the justification not really credible in terms of the timing.
1: Speaking of timing, we're taping this uh, day earlier than usual. And today was a day, Monday, the 13th of December, where the Minister of National Defence, the Deputy Minister, and the Chief of Defense Staff apologized as part of the class action uh, lawsuit or settlement over sexual misconduct, assault, harassment, discrimination over the past 30 or 40 years. I, I assume that you followed the coverage of this. Well, how, what, are you, what are your actions to the, to the apology?
0: Yeah, so I listened to the apology, and it's clear that the survivor's perspective is well integrated into the overall crafting of the apology. So the lived experiences of victims and survivors of sexual misconduct, those were well represented in in the apologies. Of course, the apology was pitched more broadly because it also talked about everyone that has suffered from this climate, some, from the b- toxic climate, including harassment, discrimination. So it, it went above and beyond sexual misconduct and abuse. It talked a lot about the burden mm-hmm. suffered by those who had, you know, who were not believed who suffered professional and social exclusion from speaking out or from reporting. It talked also about the calf's own processes and procedures as re-victimizing those who've suffered from harm. And in terms of the way ahead, I was struck by the insistence that there would be more consultation and transparency, because of course, that's that's what we really hope for as external stakeholders is more transparency, better access to data mm-hmm. and internal reporting and policies and more transparency can just help. And, and the role that we play as academics in terms of providing one of the many channels for oversight and and review of what's going on?
1: I think the words were quite meaningful. Mm -hmm. I think they were the right words. I know I'm not a survivor of this, so I can't really speak to what it means for those folks who've been directly impacted by how the various institutions failed. I did like Minister Anand's discussion because she made it clear that multiple governments have failed to protect those who are supposed to be protecting Canada, you know, and and I pointed out on Twitter that the failures are recent, which is that I'll grind this ax one more time, which is that if the government really cared, they would have fired Sai John in February rather than wait until, uh, you know, the the election, because the last month or two has been a breath of fresh air where Ananda's is actually doing the right thing. She's made a break with the past. She's actually taking seriously civilian control of the military. And I I just wish that had happened sooner that, they delayed and dithered on this. Yeah. I understand the electoral logic to it, but I mean, that's part of the problem with the past, which is that it was always politically convenient to to not take this stuff as seriously as they should have. It's always easy for the opposition to, to snark about this stuff, but it's hard for, it, there are political costs to, making real change, but they have to be willing to bear the burden of these costs. You you become a politician, you join, you get into power. That means that you have, as Ben Parker and Spider-Man remind us, with great power comes great responsibility. That means that it's not just about winning the next election. That means that they have to sometimes make the hard choices. And so, you know, I saw some pushback on Twitter about people saying, well, they're apologizing for this stuff but not they're not really identifying the roots of why this is going on and that might have been too much to squeeze into an apology but we need to take really really very quite seriously what the roots are to all of this. You know we talk about culture vaguely and we talk about these various things but this is the reckoning is not over with this apology does not end sort of the criticism and the concern about what exactly will be done because this is more than you know the, the abuse of power which was a phrase that was used not just about sexual misconduct. It's a broader pattern of leadership not fulfilling their responsibilities, of not pushing, putting mission before self, of treating them, treating themselves as if they have entitlements and privileges that the subordinates do not have. And that has to change. And it has to change with greater civilian control of the military. And that's really where Mr. Renan going to face a great deal of resistance is going to be on having Civilians muck about in the stuff that the military thinks is their sandbox. But the military is going to have to realize that they lost their right to our autonomy by mishandling the stuff for generations. And that's, going to to, it's not a one time thing. It's going to have to be a sustained change in the relationship between the minister, the Department of National Defense, and the Canadian Armed Forces.
0: Yeah, I, I agree that an apology is not the moment to go into all of the causes and to explain, provide an explanation, nor is it an opportunity to lay out the, the policy options ahead. It's uh, really an opportunity to take ownership of the problem and to sincerely acknowledge the harm that's been caused. And I think in, in that respect, as you said, that the words were powerful. I just wish that there had been just a little bit of unscripted time. <laughs> that, that's all. And I, I, I'm i not faulting anyone's personality here in terms of the delivery. It's just, you know, if you're going to be planning a 40 minute apology, just like three to five minutes of each individual speaking directly from their heart or, you know, conveying something meaningful from their own voice unscripted before going into the formal apology. That's the only thing I, w- I may have done a bit yeah. differently. And, and I think it's, it's important to be said, because you're very vulnerable, you know, you need to make yourself vulnerable in in those moments and the formality uh, of it. I understand it was necessary, but yeah, I guess, I mean, it's easy to to criticize. That was an incredibly scrutinized moment. And uh, I'm I'm glad it happened because it's an important milestone. And I'd rather focus on, on the positive of today, which acknowledging and taking ownership of the problem from these three leaders is very important in the road that's ahead. And today was an important milestone. And I'm glad that the victims and survivors received the apology
1: yes and i'm glad that it was all three of them and indeed even earlier today the prime minister mentioned that he was sorry as well although again i think he could have done it a little better in terms of taking his own responsibility for mistakes that he's made but i think we got what we what we can reasonably expect i think it's a major moment but it's it's hardly a turning point there's much work to be done and uh, i wish the minister, much luck in the next steps because the the process from here is not going to be easy at all. I guess that's one Christmas wish. So the next segment is our interviews. We met with the entire class of the Halifax piece with women. Fellowship, which had 12 women from across NATO and beyond who are senior military officers. We've done this before. We skipped last year because of the pandemic. All the good news is that batch of women will be coming through Canada. In March, they'll be interviewing them. And so we interviewed them in groups of three. You'll be listening to two of the groups next time. It was a really terrific experience for us again to to talk to these super smart, super experienced women who have amazing perspectives on on the careers they've had. So that's our our next segment. And of course, I'll do my R&R. Stephanie, is there anything you want I say about the time we had with the uh, Halifax piece with Women Fellowship Women?
0: I guess the only thing I'll say is that I crossed paths again with one of them because last week there was a uh, nato committee on gender perspective conference and so i got to to see her speak again in in this context so it's nice because when you're when you're meeting fantastic female leaders like uh, this group of fellows it's also you you also know that you're you may cross paths with them later on so I, i was glad to establish that first contact it had really wonderful things to say and it was clear to them just how meaningful this opportunity to connect was with other women leaders. So I'm glad that we've integrated that into our program last year and this year, and that I think it's a tradition that's going to continue. I also want to take a quick moment to wish all of the Battle Rhythm listeners wonderful holidays and a happy new year as we go in our break, and then we do the transition to the segment. And of course, Steve, it's always wonderful to chat with you about the events of the past two weeks. And thank you again for a wonderful weekend.
1: Enjoy the holidays, Stephanie. Have a happy new year. And to our listeners, take a break. Ignore my suggestions for the r segment if you must, but get off your computer screens and and do whatever it takes to to distract yourself from the stuff that's going on around the world. Enjoy your break. Thank you, you too.
2: My name's um, Kate Lee, Colonel Kate Lee, and I'm in the New Zealand Army. Um, I work in our Army General Staff as the Assistant Chief of Army Delivery, which is a fancy way of saying or uh, delivering the in-year aspects of the Army strategy, and that includes things like strategic people management, career management, uh, budget, uh, overseas training and commitments, among other things. I'm Colonel Krista Bocart, I'm with the uh,
3: Canadian Armed Forces, the Canadian Army specifically. Right now I am the Director of the Canadian Forces Grievance Authority, so what does that mean? (laughs) I am in charge of trying to modernise what is a very broken uh, grievance system with the view to better deliver on our mandate to support our Canadian Armed Forces members and the complaints and uh, concerns that they have as part of their careers.
4: Hi, my name's Jude Terry, Uh, I'm a Commodore in the Royal Navy. My current job is Deputy Director of People Delivery in Navy Command which is a very catchy job title for looking after talent management, career management, promotion, welfare support, physical uh, training, adventurous training and casualty reporting amongst other things i'm about to be the navy's first female admiral and i will take up the post at some point next year
1: congratulations and you, what is your next job as an admiral
4: my next job is going to be my current boss so i will <laughs> be uh, director of people and training and responsible then for my current job the long term strategic view of workforce in the royal navy including whole force so civil servants contractors etc and also training establishment well,
0: congratulations on being selected as fellows and since the Peace with Women Fellowship promotes female leadership in the armed forces I would like to ask each of you to describe your leadership style and maybe to provide some advice to women either in the military or in other professional sectors.
2: I might ask answer that question a, a little bit differently rather than describing my style I guess I could describe my approach to leadership and it really has changed over time because what works at one level doesn't work at the next level. So it is about being really intentional about that leadership and knowing that you need to continue to learn and develop. So it's a journey and you never you never reach the end state. So for me it's being humble and curious. And one of the things in particular that I that I find really important is to seek out feedback. So the more senior you get, it's not as easy to get feedback, people don't want to give it to you, and it's really hard to ask for it, so it does take a little bit of courage to seek feedback. And sometimes you, I've found sometimes getting feedback is not in traditional ways, sometimes it's looking at the expression on someone's face when you when you say something, or a response, or you know when you're talking to a colleague or a subordinate, um, and the way they approach something for me that's feedback and I really do try to be curious with that and ask ask about people's perspectives and certainly about how I'm performing and how I'm showing up as a leader. I really think it's important to seek that feedback because it's the only way you're going to improve um, is to look outwards as well as inwards. So you ask a lot of questions i do i but i'm also i also observe um and it's like i said around the the interactions the way people interact and uh, you might see a look on someone's face and think that didn't land i need to know why that was um mm-hmm. can you tell me what's going on for you there or can i can i ask you a little bit more about that and, or i see that that response might have triggered you or, or whatever it is and it is hard work because it's not It's not easy to get feedback, it hurts, it's hard, it's painful, but that's what helps us grow. I've recently been engaging in a leadership program and one of the really important learnings I got from that is that feedback is a gift. And if you accept it as that, then that can really help you learn and grow as a leader. In, in terms of leadership, I, so I started out. Uh, I'm an artillery officer by
3: trade, so uh, you know, on a, on a gun line, and, and working in the field for the majority of the, 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 at least the beginnings of my career. And I think what I really had to learn and grow into was being yourself. I stuck out like a sore thumb in my trade. I was one of a, I was, I was one of the first uh, in my trade, and understanding that it was okay to be rather small, to have kind of an odd sense of humor, to not look like everybody else, to come from a different province and have different experiences and just own that and, and be real about it, It took me a number of years to get there. But I think that having that positive reinforcement from those around me who looked to me for what it was that made me unique and special really reinforced my confidence in, in, in kind of gaining gaining my voice, gaining my leadership confidence and voice Being able to adapt that voice over time depending on um, the level of leadership or the position that I'm in and uh, and using that voice to empower others to find their own voices. And I think one of the most striking moments that I had that I understood how much I have influence over people in that regard is I had a young captain and uh, he had a very mathy background and everyone kept telling him, you know, you got to just kind of let some of that math geekiness go. And I spoke with him, and he was really concerned about it. He said, I don't think I belong here. And I said, absolutely, you do. I said, you have to own your inner geek. You own own what you bring to the table because you are bringing something unique to the team that others don't have, and you can reinforce maybe some of their deficiencies or gaps in knowledge with what it is you bring.
1: I'd like Um, to have my artillery officers be really good at math myself. Yeah,
3: I think another one is there is no one path. And so we all think in the military that it's very linear and it's very traditionalist, but uh, I, I honestly think that there is no one path to a particular job or rank. And I think that uh, that leads into uh, to, to my belief that you really have to own your space. So you have to trust in yourself and the opportunities and the positions that you've been given uh, that it's going to be enough to get you to proceed to that next rank level, to that next pillar of responsibility that you're going to have to assume you have to treat yourself kindly not compare yourselves to others and uh, and really trust in what you've built up over time
4: so i think i would i would echo everything that krista and kate have said but from my perspective it is about being yourself you can't be anybody else. And in the military in particular, because it is a lifestyle, it is a way of life. I'm in the Navy, you spend a lot of time cooped up in either a gray uh, ship or a black tube, uh, and it's 24 seven. And therefore the, the hardest lesson probably to learn is to, to be yourself, but that is what you need to be because you you can't be anybody else for that length of time. I think it's also hard. Leadership is a privilege. Uh, which kind of echoes Kate's point about being humble. Uh, it is an absolute privilege, it is not a God-given right, and you need to adapt your style depending where you are. So the way I would lead a firefighting team or the damage control team in a ship is very, very different. It is um, That is focused, that is functional, and that, that has a, an activity and an operational output that needs to happen now. In my current job, challenge is exactly where I need to be, and you need to be comfortable with challenge. That doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to agree with the challenge, but you have to allow that. That's about being confident in your space and, and allowing yourself to grow and to change as you go through. I think the other thing I'd say is it, it, it's uncomfortable. You can't be everybody's friend. And I used to say that I'd love it if everybody respected me and liked me. But in the workforce, if I can't have like... you need respect that is not a comfortable place for people to be necessarily and I think that the the final point I would comment on is uh, I have learned to be vulnerable vulnerability is okay and we spend quite a lot of time thinking that we need to protect ourselves to be strong Uh, and and of course when you're the damage control officer that is exactly where you need to be when you're in artillery or or in in command of a signals unit that's what you need to be Uh, However, when you are working on other projects, you're working with other people, you need to allow yourself to, to demonstrate vulnerability to your team, as uncomfortable as that is, because then they will understand what makes you tick as a leader and where your boundaries are, and only then can you learn from them and about them.
1: This trip involves not just visiting Ottawa, but you've been to the United States already, so across the tour that you've gone on, what's sort of been the biggest surprise, biggest lessons? Obviously you're doing this in a time of COVID, so it's probably a different experience than your predecessors have. You've met a lot of people, including today you met the prime minister. So if you want to dish on him, that's fine. I'm obviously uh, that might be something that, uh, the, that the colonel can do uh, since he's technically your boss at the end of the day. But you, know, you spent a lot of time, through these weeks, the Halifax International Security Forum has been taking you around North America. So the idea is for you to learn stuff. So what have you learned?
4: and so i was offered the chance to apply for the halifax peace of Women's fellowship and i said to my boss i've done advanced command and staff course i've done higher command and staff course i think we should allow someone else this opportunity and my boss said you're a candidate apply and uh, i have to tell you the biggest surprise for me is how much i have learned from the people around me their similar experiences the things i'm not sure i had even thought about in my 24 years in the armed forces because you turn up and you do your job because that's what you want to do and you are you but when you then have some time to sit back and reflect that is one of the things that has been absolutely empowering mm. enlightening and has probably made some lights go on in my head that I'm I'm not sure I was ever really aware of and I think the second point uh, without wishing to hog the microphone is the access that we have had and the willingness of people to speak to us about all things security from climate to China to gender perspectives and by that we don't mean being a male or being a female or being non-binary we mean what is the impact of your activity on all genders so when you so you understand when you go and go and come up with a security solution the impact it will have on that community and, and that has it has a, has a lens and for me the fact that we have had today the prime minister we in Washington we had a depth Sec. Def was prepared to spend time with us we've had an amazing breakfast yesterday with a whole bunch of canadian defense force senior representatives that for me has been the most amazing because you are able to have open frank and honest conversations with people who are a interested in your view but can teach you so much and so i think that's that's what i've learned
3: Uh, So for me, this has been an incredibly powerful and empowering opportunity and experience. Coming into a room with 11 other incredible leaders from around the globe uh, who share in some of my experiences, who share in some of my challenges. We all felt an instantaneous connection uh, with each other and understood that there were common threads that kind of bound us all together. I think notably for most of us, our mothers or some female figure in our life have played incredible roles in molding us into the human beings and leaders that we are today. And so I found that just incredibly inspiring and reinvigorating at this point in my career. I think that uh, the uh, intersectionality of issues throughout this fellowship has been just absolutely intriguing. So understanding that, that, that gender lens on things like fintech and biosecurity and nuclear deterrence, absolutely discussions that I hadn't previously engaged in to the level that we did with the intellectual rigor that was presented to us. So to echo Jude's point, this has just been a phenomenal tour with incredible access to some highly qualified highly opinionated
1: officials <laughs>
3: who who gave very willingly and freely of their opinions and their
2: thoughts uh, knowing that it was going to benefit us down the road the risk of repeating um what other two colleagues have said um, honestly it's they i would be in the presence of even other leaders of such a high caliber 24 7, so we have this opportunity not just to turn up and, and have an engagement in a meeting and a discussion, but then afterwards in our own time and space reflect on it and be able to make meaning of it. And that meaning has been evolving over time and I'm talking to my friends back home and saying, I don't quite know what I'm what I'm gonna do with this yet, but I know that it's gonna to come together and synthesise for me. I had a message from one of my friends yesterday and she said to me I sent her a picture of of all of us and she said oh have you found your people and I actually found myself getting really emotional because it's what it feels like and I thought that was just such an amazing insight for her and that she can see from what I've been sending her and telling her that that's that's how I feel about it to the content of our discussions, I've been really interested that we've been talking about culture a great deal in, in a number of different ways and different, in different layers, and we've talked about science, technology, cyber, obviously all of these things that are intersecting, but what seems pervasive is that culture, people and human behaviour trumps everything. So unless we get our head around how people are behaving, the issues that we have with misinformation disinformation and how we talk to our people and how we how we communicate we're not going to move forward so so culture people and behavior will always be extremely important and it's really highlighted that for me um, in every in every conversation that we've had
0: how do you intend to carry that forward you've made all these really meaningful connections so what's the plan
2: I think there's some informal and some formal things that we're we're building on and um, we, we're not quite there yet but i think well I, I think i can say from my perspective we'll definitely be keeping in, in touch so we've already got a group that we're communicating with um, and we're already sharing insights and, and articles and, and news and i think there is definitely some areas that we have some common areas of interest that we are leaning into in our respective militaries that that I can see us connecting with more formally as well. So there's some great, um, I think there's some great takeaways, particularly in the culture and, and, and
4: people. yeah. And I think as I step into my next job, you know, I have learned so much from from the people, the leaders that I've been with. It's about checking back in with them and making sure that whatever I'm doing does make sense. That I that I'm not being allowed to fall back into a a trap that that you know I wasn't always there. It's also about saying, is this on? you know is this really right am i right to feel like this and i think there will be as kate says the formal and the informal from from meeting up to hopefully seeing each other at next year's halifax forum because we we always get asked to come back to the you know ritual if you live in europe why don't you all meet up um and i think uh, i'm with kate i'm not sure i know who my women peace and security ambassador is i know who canada's is that's probably a fault of mine, and I need to go back and work out how I make those connections without making it all about just gender. It needs to be professional, capable, competent, but it needs to link in to, to all that work that's already going on.
1: Have you met Jackie O'Neill? Yes. Yeah. She's great. I'll we'll be having dinner with her too. Oh, great. Right. At her place? Yeah.
3: <laughs> I think for me, this, has, this experience has really taught me that I have some work to do personally in terms of sponsoring and mentoring the next generation uh, when it comes to this intersectionality of issues, uh, looking at culture change, which we are in the heart of right now within the Canadian Armed Forces, and really making sure that I do justice to my fellow colleagues and uh, those that I lead and serve alongside in making sure that I'm doing the right things that I am providing the right example and that I am there championing them as we go through what are very difficult times.
0: Follow up on that quickly
3: because we've talked a lot about culture change on this
0: podcast and I'd just be curious for New Zealand and the UK respectively. You mentioned that there were areas of common interest when it comes to culture and people. I'm just wondering what are some of these issues that that came up in the conversations you've had comparing the situation in your country with Canada.
1: And and maybe also, things that your country's doing that might help inform us. you know, you might be a little further ahead or we're on a different track than us, so how can we figure out how to improve the, the culture uh, of the calf?
2: I think there's a general agreement that what served us in the past, and I mean, when I say us, I'm talking generically, everybody, um, everybody's organisations. What served us in the past doesn't ne- isn't necessarily going to serve us going forward in the future. But we are all organisations that are grounded in tradition, and rightly so. And we, and that's really in, a really important anchor. So I guess the challenges, and I don't have the answer to that yet. And it's going to be navigating, it's going to be experimenting, it's going to be testing and adjusting. Is What do we hold on to? What do we anchor again? What do we anchor to? And how do we make sure that we're very clear about that? And being intentional and deliberate about what adjustments we're going to make and then clear about what those are and what the initiatives that we put in place to get there. So we're certainly working on it that, from that approach. But we also are looking to our partners as to what they're doing and, and the challenges they're, they're facing. So there is a lot of work happening across all of our, our militaries and there's a lot of sharing that's going to happen, I think, in the future.
4: And I think from the UK's perspective, so uh, my job is to deliver people transformation on behalf of my boss. And as part of that, it's about understanding that people are a capability, which we've not necessarily been able to recognise. And almost more so as we go forward, because cyber, space, intelligence analysis, all of those things still need people. uh, and, And the machines can do some of it for you, but the people are the key. Uh, I'm with Kate. I'm so proud to be in the Royal Navy and to be in the in the UK's uh, Ministry of Defence because of the traditions that come with being... In a service, and I think that is the same from wherever you are. And so we need to work out what are the things that are really important about building the team because ultimately your operational effectiveness is about the team. What are the things that quite frankly don't matter? And we should allow people to be as individual as they can be within that team because that's what brings you. We have a debate about diversity and inclusivity, and inclusivity is everybody being feeling like they're part of the team and being able to bring as much or little of themselves as they want. To be part of that team and and so there's a balance in there that we shouldn't be looking back we should definitely be looking forward but you need to keep those things that make you build the team and glibly people will say things like ethos and values but actually they're the real things but it has to be the ethos and values that are really important to delivering those outputs not the things that we might have just grown up with and and never challenged because it's always been like that, and for me, we are probably slightly ahead in naval terms than Canada right now, but only in certain issues. There are, I, I think, there will be uh, similar experiences at home. And um, but for me, I think the culture changes people as a capability, and if you if you embed that. And the only other comment I'd make for your podcast is, um, we had an interesting debate today, and I've been having this debate for the last seven months in my current job. Some things are announceables. Some things you can change now. So we've all recently changed our hair policy. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't even have to debate that. That should be really easy. Some things will take time. And to grow us has taken 20 plus years. You have to accept that some of these things will take some time. And it's about getting that balance right. And making the the population who you want to recruit and retain really feel valued in that but understanding that some of this stuff is going to take a while and for me that that's the bit that we need to really really try and balance otherwise we will find ourselves in some trouble with some announceables but they won't be sustainable and then in five years ten years time we'll all be coming back around this boy um excuse the
2: can i just add one of the things that that i think is really important is to acknowledge that we don't do culture change for the sake of it, it's not a it's not a project in its own right. What we all are aiming to be is the very best we can be um, as our militaries and individuals, and and that's why we do it. So being diverse and inclusive, it's not about it for the, for the sake of it. It is absolutely the right thing to do, and we can't get, we should never look away from that. But it's also about being an organisation that brings the absolute best out of everybody, and we do that by being representative of, of our nations and it's not only about that either it's about really supporting and encouraging those behaviours that are going to to ensure that we are operationally effective so how do we become more innovative if that's what if that's what we think is important so what are those behaviours that we're encouraging by allowing experimentation for example and encouraging those kind of behaviours so it's 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 much more than you know those really negative behaviours that, that we hear about all the time. there's some really positive aspects of this that we need to encourage and, and move forward with. So I think it's really exciting time and I think we' we're, we're seeing the opportunities in this which is which is amazing and I, and I see everyone really leaning into this challenge and taking it up.
4: And I think the final point I'd make probably is that it needs to be about everybody so i need to make my military more attractive to everybody and if that means you know nine months deployments aren't attractive to anybody well they might be but but not often Um, and they might be attractive at the start of your career but they're probably not attractive at the point at which you want to settle down buy a house have a family play football for your local team whatever so we need to make this work for everybody and we need to be able to deliver on ramps and off ramps and remove the traditional hoops and culture that says, well, you you can't do that because you haven't done A, B, and C. We need to appreciate, as as Krista said in her description, you learn things from everywhere you've been and that's good, those skills are the things we need.
1: Do you want to get the last word as a Canadian in the uh, (laughs) room? Sure.
3: I think it really comes down to being open to new ideas, being adaptable, and really challenging our own bias, right? Um, being stuck in the past and, and not really exploring all of the, the, the option space that uh, that is presented in front of us uh, will be at our peril. And so I really think that this is the time to embrace change, uh, to seek out new ideas and really be fearless in, in implementing them. Worst case, it's going to fail and then we try something else. But we won't know until we give it a shot and, uh, and we just get out of our, our comfort zone and our, our, our normal traditional boxes. And, uh, and just try to, uh, to move things forward.
5: Uh, I'm Jennifer de Porter, I'm from the Netherlands. I'm a Colonel in the Royal Military and Border Police and I'm the Head of Operations of the Operational Headquarters. So that means I'm responsible for everything that happens between now and a year in the Military and Border Police in the Netherlands and in the Dutch Caribbean.
6: Hi, I'm uh, Lieutenant Colonel Diana Moraes. I work in the Portuguese Ministry of Defence as Gender Advisor of my Minister and I'm also Chair of the NATO Committee on Gender Perspectives. And I'm an
7: engineer officer by trade, and I'm really glad that I'm here today. Hi, I'm Colonel Byljana Blažovska from North Macedonian Armed Forces. Uh, my current position is military adjutant to the President and Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces of the Republic of North Macedonia. Um, I have 20 years experience in the Armed Forces uh, as a logistician and I'm glad to be here with okay. you. Since this is a conversation about
0: gender perspectives, and I know there are a lot of misunderstandings out there about what gender perspectives mean, I want to know how each of you explain it to your peers, because we generally have about 30 seconds to explain what it means, I'm wondering how you do that in your day-to-day.
6: My easy explanation is to, to say that in everything that we do, or in every strategy, policy, action, we need to understand that that will have a different impact if you are a woman, a man, boy or girl, or any other gender. And unless you consider that, your strategy, policy, or action may not be affected or, or might have a different impact than the one you
7: were expecting. And then I will just continue that from my point of view. The gender, we should not take it's like competition between men and women. We should uh, just try to work uh, together, uh, shoulder by shoulder, uh, to each other, and to recognize uh, the knowledge, professionalism, and then responsible approach to the, to the task. What they both said is uh, what I would say, but I uh, top of it, I, w- I would
5: also say it's usually about the role we traditionally play in society. So women have a certain role in a certain culture, men have another role in a certain culture. So it's not just men and women, but also, like Diana said, we have children, boys, girls. And for me, it can also be which group do you belong to in society.
1: In the course of your careers, you've all been in the military for 20 years, plus or minus. And so I'm sure there's been a lot of change in the course of your career. And so can you talk a little bit about sort of things that have changed, the things that haven't changed, that need to change? And, and maybe what were the kinds of things that were propelling change? over the course of your career?
7: So, uh, changing the culture in the military, it is, accepting uh, society, it is really difficult because even if you make some changes, uh, to, then those changes uh, should be accepted by the society and uh, by the, the population. In our armed forces, in Ministry of Defense, we have done so much regarding the uh, gender equality because uh, we are somehow a young country and then uh, first uh, we started with, in 1998, the military uh, female cadets started to join the, the military academy, but it was only for the services, not for the all branches in the, in the armed forces. And I can say that uh, everything actually started to, to change, uh, to be changed. Um, in 2004 when we opened the door in the military academy for the female cadets for all, all branches. After that uh, we are working so much the, the female officers, female personnel to be in the uh, services in all uh, categories in the, in the uh, armed forces but not, not only that, also to be posted in the decision-making uh, positions, yeah, leadership uh, position and we've increased the number of the women in our armed forces. But what is more important, we were looking after the uh, quality and uh, professional approach to the task, to the given task. So that, uh, that should be, you know, the, the measure somehow uh, where they should be posted.
6: So I would add to this, yes, there was a change. First of all, because the armed forces were a, an only male environment and they had to adapt to having women uh, in the services. So we, I would say that now all the formal barriers were broken, like w- women can have any job in the armed forces. We, we have made adaptations to our regulations uniform, to, the, to our infrastructures, either accommodation, our ships, so women can be there. But what we still, so all the formal barriers are are, are broken, but now we, we, and when we talk about cultural change, we need to think about the informal barriers, like why don't we have more women in leadership positions because, and we've discussed this all together, if women don't choose uh, specialties or functions that are related to the combat arms or the operational side, of the armed forces, they will probably, during their careers, they won't be able to to get to those leadership positions. So the the change that now needs to be done, and with this gender perspective, with this lens on, is are we making sure we are giving the exact same opportunities to women and men in the armed forces, that we are uh, being able to guarantee that if a woman joins the armed forces she will be able to get to the top and this is the kind of thinking we need to do and think if we need to change behaviors or traditions to be able to guarantee that
5: well your prime minister this morning said to us diversity is a source of strength not a source of weakness and i think that idea we have in everyone's head in the Netherlands or in most people's head. And there are, the thought is there and there are no barriers anymore. I think we have, maybe not on submarines, we don't have women yet, Mm -hmm. but we are changing that. Uh, Either it has just been changed or it's going to change. So There's nothing that formally cannot be done. And people think that diversity, so that also means more women, will strengthen the armed forces. But then after that, after we've all said that, it needs to be done. And that is what is still not always going really well because when I joined which was in 2000, there were already female lieutenant colonels and colonels in the military and border police and the colonel is still the highest rank that is held by women until now. Fortunately there are four now and when I joined there was only one, so, but it's going slow. And you also, what I see is that uh, if I speak about it with my male colleagues, they all say, yeah, there really should be more women. <laughs> but if you call them out on something they do that is not women or female friendly, they are not always aware of it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I need to say, yeah, what you're doing now, really? You know what we call that? That's mansplaining. And some of them will be, oh, you're such an activist. But fortunately, others, others will also say, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yes, yeah, I didn't realize that. Thank you. So I think it's also, it is about awareness. So you need to keep paying attention to it and slowly, but in my opinion, way too slowly, it's changing. You
0: were really uh, all very articulate about defining gender perspectives at the outset of the conversation. I'm wondering if you, could share some examples with our listeners of how gender perspectives have mattered in operations, either through your own experience or the experiences of others you've encountered. Yeah, Yeah. I can
5: definitely uh, share that. When I was in 2005, was the first time I went to Afghanistan. And at that time, Afghanistan meant men. So we went out, I was in a provincial reconstruction team. So the idea was that the Dutch government adopted the province like uh, all the provinces were adopted by nato countries and you were responsible for trying to uh, rebuild with assisting the police assisting the local government assisting the armed forces in your area and helping them you know training for example i was responsible for training the local police and we found out that those were all men Mm -hmm. and we said so who's speaking to the women here and then the armed the dutch armed forces said yes that's a bit of a problem because we have very few women with us and we don't have any female interpreters so in the end we had to wait until they found a female interpreter in the netherlands that could come and speak with us uh, to come with the female Mm -hmm. officers to go speak with the the females of the province. Mm -hmm. So that is a very, very simple Mm -hmm. example, I think. If you don't have females in the armed forces, you cannot manage your operation efficiently when you are abroad.
6: And I would add, so two different perspectives on this. One, agreeing with Jennifer that if we are going to some other country deployed and we really need to our force needs to reflect the society we are seeking to protect because otherwise either our acceptance from that society if they are they don't see themselves reflected in that in our forces it will be uh, be more difficult for them to accept that we are there to help them right and the other perspective of the gender perspective in in, in operations is uh, not only having more women but this thinking this gender lens Because even with the threats that we are facing, we need to understand that our adversaries are using gender perspective. And Mm -hmm. I will give you an example. There are some terrorist groups that are using uh, women as female suicide bombers, for instance, in Nigeria, because we have all all the stereotypes that women are peaceful, they are not terrorists. So it's much more easier for a, a female to pass by a checkpoint because they can first be, because if in their uh, police forces in the country they don't have female to search them to the body search they will just cross by easily and then uh, they can also hide the, the explosives in their clothes it's easier and even from that terrorist group's perspective It's, I would call it, easier uh, to lose a woman in a suicide bomber than to lose a man because the man can be a really important asset for the organization, because can be a future leader or a real important combatant, so we have to acknowledge this, that gender perspective matters in the way we do operations, so it's it's really the way you think.
7: Yes, and I would add uh, here that is no, uh, not only you know for the mission abroad, but uh, we faced uh, with the COVID-19 crisis uh, last year and this uh, this year, and we have learned from that uh, situation a lot. Uh, not only learned, but we faced up that uh, a lot of women and uh, children were were affected, not only from the the virus, but also that they were uh, from the, the violence uh, against the, uh, them uh, because we were closed at our homes, you know, so in the military, in the armed forces actually we have created the system for protection. Our healthcare, care, psychologists, specialists, they've made uh, the brochures and a system how to, how to like a call system how to report the, the violence at, at, uh, from, from, uh, from home and uh, actually the, the female who were victims uh, felt more, more comfortable and they had more uh, trust in the, uh, in the female officers. And I think that's also what we see uh, being in the military and border
5: police. I mean half of the people that cross the border are females. So if they want to report something, sometimes they feel more comfortable speaking to a man and sometimes they feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. to a woman. So you need to be a reflection of society to a certain extent to handle society around you as well.
1: You've been traveling through North America for the past, I guess, couple weeks now. Lots of meetings, lots of briefings, lots of hanging out with each other. So what has sort of been the biggest either surprise for you over the course of the, the time or one of the biggest takeaways you have when you go back to your own service and your own country.
7: So for me, the biggest takeaway is being uh, in the same place, same room with uh, 11 plus women officers from different country and different tradition, and uh, how they manage actually. Uh, the fight uh, you know against the stereotypes that uh, they were faced up during the their career yeah
6: i think the surprise is acknowledging that even if we if we come of, of very different countries the challenges we face are mainly the same so i would say this was a surprise and the biggest takeaway i would say it's this incredible network that we are building and then I'm sure it will be really useful in the future besides the friendship that we are uh, building too, I would say that. For me
5: it was, I have never been really into gender things and don't ask me if you need a woman to speak. For me it was never an issue and I don't think it was a big issue for my colleagues either that I was a woman. But being here, I realized that sometimes there are issues and uh, that's okay. And you see how others manage and yeah, so for me, it's being more eye opening to do to, more to say, oh, yeah, sometimes it is an issue and maybe I can handle it slightly different. And that would also mean something for the women who are coming up the ranks behind me. And I think that's also important that I feel more. Comfortable, I would say, and feel that I need to be need to do a bit more, also for the women who are coming behind me. So I need to give something back. I think I realized that by being here.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Good luck in the rest of your trip.
5: Yeah, congratulations on the fellowship, and I do hope that you keep
2: this network going. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you.
1: Since that time of year, I've got. Three different holiday movies that were, or shows that I'm a really big fan of that are great distractions. Stephanie mentioned Elf earlier, and I thought it, that really is a, one of the very top Winterfest specials or movies to watch with the family. I'm a big fan of Scrooge, uh, the Bill Murray take on the classic Charles Dickens tale. I think it, uh, it's, it's really Bill Murray at the height of his powers. It's got a lot of great actors in it. I've always had it, you know, from the time Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, I had a or actually, even before that, I had a crush on Karen Allen, so it was great to see her in that movie. It's just a fun, fun take on a story that's been beaten into the ground. So I recommend Scrooge quite highly. Uh, the second Christmas movie is something that people don't think of, some people don't think is a Christmas movie, but since Christmas is integral to the movie, Die Hard, it's always worth a good rewatch. Uh, we miss Alan Rickman quite a bit. It's just such a fun, fun movie. Whenever I'm in, in Los Angeles, I, I think about the sight of the The Terrorist Attack, Nakatomi Prado and all the rest of it. It's just a great, great piece of action flood. And finally, a a TV show that should be on sometime soon. And you probably can find it online. Or if not, at least you can find pieces of it on YouTube, which is The Year Without a Santa Claus. And when I was a teenager, you know, those kinds of specials or TV shows weren't really hip anymore for, you know, 15, 16, 70 year olds. But this song and all that went with it, the Heat Miser, Snow Miser song and all the rest, still burned it in my head i just love that that song it was the silliest of all the of all the holiday movies and so that's the one i'll recommend it it's fundamental in my mind for this time of year enjoy the holidays i hope somebody's baking as many cookies for you as i'm going to be doing for my friends over the next week or two and have a happy new year and we'll see you or you'll be listening to us anyway on wednesday january 19th that's our next episode We're taking a month off to refresh and then figure out how to teach the next semester. Take care.